You may open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. That was a wonderful song that we just sang. The first several verses were the spirit of Cornelius and wanting God to show him the truth by the mouth of Simon Peter. The fourth verse was a prayer for the Holy Spirit to bless us, to love and to know that truth. And as Charlie mentioned in his prayer from that song, the truth is concealed Amen. in the Word of God. And it's revealed only to a few. For those of you that uh, may not have heard that very many times, we have a document on our website called, Is God the Author of Confusion? The question is asked rhetorically in 1 Corinthians about the chaos that was occurring at the church in Corinth because of their obsession as modern charismatics and Pentecostals with the least gift that God ever gave the church below deacons or any other gift, and that's speaking in tongues. And so Paul said, is God the author of confusion? No, he is not. And so there are very specific rules to govern the use of tongues, to govern prophets in the early apostolic church. So the answer to the question in 1 Corinthians is no, God is not the author of confusion in his church assemblies. But is God the author of confusion in other places and in other ways? Oh, yes, he is. He is. That's why it's called the Tower of Babel, because they were reduced to confusion at Babel. And Jesus spoke in parables, not to make the truth of the gospel simple for the common people to understand, as parables are commonly defined, but Jesus spoke in parables so that the people could not understand and would not be converted. And that's what it says in the Word of God in Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. And Jesus told His apostles, because it is given to you to know these things, but to them it is not given to know these things. That is another discriminating sovereign choice of our great God for which we should be very thankful and pray to Him to reveal the truth to us, which is why we sang that song and why we pray for God to open the truth to us and show it to us. That kind of information is not very popular today and it's hardly known that God is the author of confusion. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 it says, And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. That they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That's the Word of God. It is serious business when God presents truth to us that we respond to it accordingly. The truth of God. That we embrace it. That we repent of our sins or any wrong imaginations or thoughts in our minds and humble ourselves before whatever the Word of God teaches. And you've already just had one laid upon you that is contrary to our thinking. Truth is not a right. Truth is a privilege given by God. We chose a lie in Eden for our race. We had truth in Eden. It was the tree of life. We could have eaten of the tree of life forever. 
We chose the lie of the devil. Just by one little word in his false Bible version. God said, thou shalt surely die. Satan said, thou shalt not surely die. Just one little word change. Lord, have mercy upon us now. We are thankful to come to your word. Preach the word is my job description, so I'm not an entertainer for you. Unless you love the truth of the Bible. Then hopefully we'll all find it very entertaining, wonderful, and glorious as we see the words unfold before us. Amen. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of His saints. This is a prophecy given by Enoch, who was a contemporary of Adam for 308 years. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of His saints. It doesn't say ten thousand of His saints. It says ten thousands. Because it's ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands. As it's described in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. And what's He going to do when He comes? To execute judgment upon all. And to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. The Lord is coming. And He's coming with His mighty angels. Those are the ten thousands of saints. And He is coming to judge the ungodly wicked around us and all those who believe not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the truth of Second Peter chapter 3. That the Lord is coming. Brethren, this is a mystery. The Bible speaks of the gospel as being the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. They're called mysteries not because we can't know them. They're not called mysteries because they're confusing to us. They're called mysteries because the world cannot know them. They are a mystery to the world. They are a mystery to our natural man. But they are clearly understood truth to our spiritual new man. You know that I love 1 Timothy 3.16. And without controversy, there is no debate on this matter. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And here are six points of great mystery the world does not know about that we believe and love in this assembly. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. That is the incontrovertible greatness of the mystery of God, but there's many more points. And 2 Peter chapter 3 has a couple more to tell us. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of His saints. That Jesus that was received up into glory is coming back from glory for us. They don't know about it. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know Him. They don't know anything. They're worried that by the temperatures of this planet increasing a quarter of a degree over a hundred years, which it hasn't, they worry that the temperature of this planet increasing a quarter of a degree over a hundred years 
will eventually exterminate life on this planet. Life ain't going to last long enough for the temperature to go up a quarter of a degree to exterminate life on this planet. The Lord is coming to exterminate life on this planet. And all the elements are going to melt with fervent heat. The heavens and the earth will be dissolved at the presence of Him who is coming, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the blessed and only potentate. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He rides upon a white horse with a name that is called the Word of God. He's our Lord and Savior, and we love Him. And we want Him to come quickly for us, and He's given us Second Peter chapter 3 to tell us about His coming. And He is, a, he is not a slacker. There are scoffers that say, and atheists have for a long time, cast doubt on the Word of God by some words that are used here and there that imply the imminency of His return, that He could return at any moment. But the apostles, if the atheists had ever read beyond the first grade, to know that you ought to read the whole book before you draw a conclusion, would find out that Paul and Peter told specifically that there was going to be a long period of time before Jesus actually came. There are prophecies to fulfill, and there are people to be saved. And so the Lord can't come, and we have that explained here against the scoffers. Let me read to you verses 5-9 through of Second Peter chapter 3. And Lord, bless the reading and the preaching of your precious, inspired, and preserved words. Second Peter 3, 5. For this, they are, they willingly are ignorant of. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And amen. Amen. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that both Testaments teach the mutual truth that Jesus Christ is coming back. And we know that because we've been over these verses before, and both epistles of Peter teach us that. The scriptures that were read to you from the pen of Paul teach us that. Old Testament prophecies that you've had read to you teach us that as well. Verses 1 and 2 say, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both, that is both First and Second Peter, which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. I want you to remember the good things that are coming for Christians, because if we don't have them, like Austin read to us, we are of all men most miserable. That ye may be mindful. We want our minds full of stuff today. We want our minds full of the Word of God. That it will be able to overwhelm and overthrow and cast out all the words of men and all the words of our own imaginations and the deceitfulness of our own hearts. That ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets 
and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior. That is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in this context. Verses 3 and 4 tell us that there's going to be opposition. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts. They want to get rid of God because they want to live the way that they want to live, which is called walking after their own lusts. And saying, here's what scoffers say, where is the promise of His coming? Where's this coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Where's this burning up of the universe? Where's this gathering of people to Him? Where's this resurrection of all dead bodies? Where's this casting into the lake of fire the devil and his angels? Where is this new heaven and this new earth? Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Oh yes, everything's been the same since God created the heavens and the earth. Notice they even grant creation, these scoffers do. Because these scoffers that are described here are better than the scoffers that we know that even deny creation or they are sarcastically granting creation just to make fun of us who believe in creation that that Jesus is not coming again. But 622 years after creation, a man was born to Jared named Enoch who was the father of Methuselah and he prophesied, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of His saints. I'm very moved by that prophecy. Because from... From 700, 800, 900 after creation, when Enoch looked forward, he didn't even see the flood because it was such a small blip on the radar. He saw a bigger blip coming. And that's the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in fire to dissolve and melt the entire universe. Praise His glorious name. This is our Savior. He's not that long-haired, John Lennon look-alike, Charlie Manson, hermaphrodite that stands at that door in a garden with hair down to the middle of his back begging for someone to let him in. That verse is abused so many times. That verse doesn't have a thing to do with salvation or eternal life. And it's used all the time. People go around thinking and saying that you need to invite Jesus into your heart in order to be saved. That isn't taught in the Bible. Revelation chapter 3.20 that tells us about Jesus standing at the door and knocking was knocking at the door of the church of Laodicea because they thought they were sufficient, rich, and well off without a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They were elect, justified, and regenerated. Their names were in the book of life and they were on their way to heaven, but they had got carnally minded as a church. The Lord Jesus Christ does not look like that. In order for you to arrive at Revelation 3.20, you have to read Revelation chapter 1, and Revelation chapter 1 tells us that His hair is white as snow, His feet like burning brass, and He has a golden girdle around His paps, a two-edged sword comes out of His mouth, His eyes are like flames of fire. And John, who knew Him the best, and John, who slept, who, who laid on His bosom at supper, fell at His feet as dead, that is the Lord Jesus Christ of the Bible. Do you love Him? Or do you want that long-haired hippie from California? The Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. And He's going to come back different than all these Catholics with their crucifixes think that He's coming back. Jesus is not in a manger and hasn't been in a manger for 2,000 years. Jesus is not hanging on a cross. 
Jesus hung on that cross, was laid in a tomb, and tore the bars of death away, and rose again the third day, after three days and three nights, contrary to Easter fables, to sit at God's right hand. He was in the ground 72 hours, just like He promised His generation. This is our Savior, and He's coming again, and let scoffers say whatever they will. They are wrong. And we have the Word of God, and we don't care what they say, how illustrious they are, how famous or popular they are, or how many of them there are. I hope that you're all convinced enough of the truth. If every other person turns against the truth, you'll still hold it. If I turn against it, so what? Who cares what I believe? It's thus saith the Lord for each of you and for me. Lord, help us to that end. Oh, they say nothing's changed since the beginning of the world. I'm 58 years old and nothing's changed in my life. You know, the trees still blossom in the spring. The squirrels still store up nuts for the winter. The sun still comes up every morning. Nothing's changed. And so even for us believers, there tends to be a disconnect, and I've warned you about this, there tends to be a disconnect that this is not true because everything seems to be staying the same. And when we read history and we go back generation after generation, the squirrels stored up nuts for those generations as well. But it's only a nut that would believe that things have to stay the same forever when the Word of God says they're going to change. Because there was an event that changed things, and it was the flood. And so it says in verse 5, for this they willingly are ignorant of. The greatest ignorance and stupidity is your choice to be ignorant by ignoring or rejecting truth offered to you. Because there is truth in the Bible and there is truth in geology and there is truth in the history of nations that there was a worldwide flood. For this they willingly are ignorant of. I don't care if there's geological evidence of the flood, and I don't care if there's historical evidence of the flood, and I don't care if they find the ark, and I don't care if they find Noah and his wife still living in the ark. I believe in the flood because the Bible says so. I understand how big the boat was. I understand how many floors it had. I understand what wood it was made out of. I understand how many were aboard. I understand how many animals of each species were taken aboard. I understand what they ate. I understand that the lions were not eating the lambs on the ark. Do you know we know all those things? We know all those things and a whole lot more. Because the Bible tells us. We have a history book, which is his story, and there's no history book like it. No history book like this one. They're willingly ignorant of a big event that happened in the past. And the big event is creation and the flood. The flood occurred 1,656 years after creation. You can easily come up with that number just by looking at the dates and the ages of men when they had their sons in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the Word of God. Do you know the Word of God this morning? I just mentioned a King of Kings and Lord of Lords on a white horse that has a name on his thigh called the Word of God. Amen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That is my Savior. That is your Savior. 
for this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God, the word of God spoke and light came into existence in Genesis 1-3. The word of God spoke and the firmament or heaven, we're told the definition of the word in Genesis chapter 1, came into existence by his spoken word and it was good. In verse 9, let the dry land appear by his word and it appeared in verse 9 of Genesis chapter 1. So we read here that they are willingly ignorant that by the word of God the heavens were of old. That's the firmament of verse 6 of Genesis 1. And the earth, verse 9, standing out of the water and in the water. Let the waters be gathered together into seas and let the dry land appear. Verse 6 jumps 1656 years. Whereby, whereby what? Whereby the word of the Lord. Whereby the word of God, the heavens and the earth, verse 6, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water, perished. That same God that gathered together the waters, remember in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, the earth was void. It had nothing there and it was just a ball of water. But that water was gathered into seas, the dry land appeared, but then 1656 years later, for the wickedness of that generation of men, God sent a deluge, a flood of water that covered the highest mountains at that time by 15 cubits or 22 and a half feet, a cubit being the distance from the tip of your finger to your elbow. A span is the distance between this, and it's nine inches and it's half a cubit. Go home and measure it. You say, well, what about Chris Nappy and Jeff Oley? Well, they just have larger cubits and spans. But the average is 18 and 9. But 22 and a half feet over the highest mountain, the waters prevailed and drowned everything that had the breath of life in it. And they're ignorant of it. They choose to be ignorant of this great event. The earth was standing in the water and out of the water, and the world that then was being overflowed with water perished by the word of the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ upholds all things by the word of His power. Hebrews 1.3 By Him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, all things consist. Colossians chapter 1 The Lord Jesus Christ can speak the word and heal. The Lord Jesus Christ can speak the word... <clears throat> and bring light into existence, bring the heavens to separate the waters that were above the heavens from the waters that were below the heavens so that we would have atmosphere to breathe. The Lord Jesus Christ can speak the word and cause the dry land to appear. The Lord Jesus Christ can say, waters come from the heavens, waters come from the deep. He opened up the fountains of the deep and water overflowed this planet. And He will speak the word soon and will come with His mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we read in verses 5-7 through that there is an answer for skeptics. That there is an event that they're overlooking to say that things aren't changing and so God hasn't really got a promise hanging out there for us to worry about. Verse 7 says, But the heaven and the earth which are now by the same word. What's the word? The word is the Lord Jesus Christ and His spoken word. 
The Lord Jesus Christ can speak anything into existence, and He can speak anything out of existence, and He can speak anything into eternal torment by saying, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This Lord Jesus, but the heavens and the earth which are now, that is the physical, material, terra firma earth, the earth that you dig in with a shovel, the earth that you plant in, that earth, the very important. Those today that want to deny that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming to burn up the heavens and the earth will go into a verse like this and spiritualize it away. They'll say that this is talking about the end of the old covenant of Moses and the introduction of the new covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what they do. The new heavens and the new earth that come up in verses 10 through 14 is the gospel era. The old heaven and the old earth that perish and melt away is the old covenant of Moses. That's what they do. They want to spiritualize away the terrible warnings of the Word of God about what is coming. Just like we thought about the flood in 1650 and in 1640 and in 1630, years after creation, it had never rained on planet earth. And here's a man preaching that it's going to rain. He preached for 120 years. His name was Noah. He's called a preacher of righteousness in the Bible. It had never rained. But it did rain. And there was only eight people that believed it was going to rain. And we're, we, we stand in doubt about seven of them. We know that Noah, by faith, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. We don't know that Mrs. Noah believed, but she went along for the ride. We don't know anything about the other seven. But God spared the whole family for Noah. Are there fathers in here like that? Are there fathers in here totally committed to the Word of God? If you have children that don't want to believe it with you, so what? It doesn't change God's Word at all. Embrace it. Live it. Preach it. Defend it. Help us, Lord. The heavens and the earth which are now. You know, He's just told you that there were heavens and earth then, and there are heavens and earth now. I'm giving you, I'm going to give you three arguments in three verses to smash preterists. I'll tell you what a preterist is in just a moment. This verse tells you that we are dealing with the physical earth, the material universe, that you can see, touch, handle, shovel, and move around. We are not dealing with some metaphor here because it was no metaphor in the days of Noah. It was the earth that got overflowed with water. It was real H2O, and it overflowed the earth and every creature that had in his nostrils the breath of life was killed. All men, all ages, no difference shown, no pity. They were all sinners. And someone will say, how can a baby be a sinner? Well, that's easy. God picked a representative for that baby that you couldn't even measure the difference in intelligence between that representative and that baby. God picked that representative in the prime of life, put him in a perfect world without any sin nature, with a perfect wife, where he could walk with God in the cool of the evening every day and gave him but one commandment to keep. And that one man did not keep the one commandment and damn the entire race that follows by conception to an eternity in the lake of fire. That is very fair. I hear all the time, 
If I were to believe in election, election isn't fair. <laughs> what in the world are you talking about? Babies die every day. What are they able to do? God gave, some, God gave someone to be their representative. And he was very intelligent and had a perfect opportunity to eat of the tree of life forever and populate this planet and we would live forever. Thankfully, there's a tree of life in heaven where we're all going and we'll be able to eat of it whenever we choose to. Because the book of Revelation tells us that. Why do babies die? Why do babies die? The wages of sin is death. So somewhere there is sin imputed and charged to babies. Why do babies die? Simple question. Do you have the answer? I love to hear people talk about the age of accountability, which is such a hilarious, ridiculous, preposterous heresy not taught anywhere in the Bible. It's simply a little emotional gadget for them to try to protect their ignorant minds from answering the question of what happens to babies. If there is an age of accountability and you love your children, you would smother them out and confess the sin of murder to God before they reach that age to guarantee them going to heaven. Unless you hate your children and want them to grow up and reject the gospel. There is no age of accountability in the Bible. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. What we need to find out is, how do we get into that second representative, the second Adam? How do we get in to the second Adam? Because that's salvation. Verse 7 tells us that it is the material, the physical heavens and the earth that are kept in store by the same word that is the word of God, reserved unto fire. There's a reservation made for this planet, and it's global warming. And it will be fervent heat in one nanosecond of time when the Lord Jesus Christ speaks the word. And it's going to be the day of judgment. We know what the day of judgment is. It's the day that the Lord Jesus Christ comes. There's no seven-year tribulation between some rapture and when Jesus Christ burns up the earth. That's not in the Bible. Where did you learn that? In Sunday school material? Come on! There's no seven-year tribulation in the Bible. There's one coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Coming that, still coming. It's called His second coming. He'll return to the earth. And when he returns, he'll burn the place up. There's going to be one resurrection. All the dead, the wicked and the righteous, are going to come out of the graves. They're going to be judged. The wicked are going to be cast into hell. The righteous will enter into heaven. We'll have the new heavens and the new earth. It's all in one grand climactic, cataclysmic day. And it's called here, against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But what we're talking about here is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It involves judgment and gathering together His people. It's the Lord descending from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God that Brother Leon read to us earlier. This day of judgment, you know what that word means? And perdition means destruction. The word perdition means destruction, so it's the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The heavens and the earth... The material heavens and earth are kept in store by the Word of God for that day. He can speak the Word, and that two-edged sword that comes out of His mouth, metaphorically showing the power of His Word, will destroy the universe. And He'll remake it for us. The new heavens and the new earth. So we come to verse 8. Now let me tell you about three schools of prophetic interpretation. 
there are three general schools of interpreting Bible prophecy. There is futurism, which is what is most popular in conservative churches in America at the present time. Futurism is that most, or nearly all, prophecies are way out in the future and don't really apply to us. Everything's way out there. Matthew 24 is way out there. The destruction, you know, they don't even know about the destruction of Jerusalem. Wars and rumors of wars. The abomination of desolation. The man of sin. All that stuff is way out there. You don't have to worry about it. The Lord's going to take us out of here with something they call the rapture when all the believers disappear and everyone else is left. There's not a word in the Bible about any of that. I was taught to believe all of that. Bob Jones University, where I went in 1975, taught that. My father, who's sitting here on the left-hand side, with his Master of Divinity from Grace Theological Seminary, taught me that. He was taught that. We, Most of us in here believe that. That stuff isn't true. That's a bunch of garbage. They don't understand the Bible, and no one believed what they teach today 150 years ago. It is a recent invention, and it sells lots of books written by Tim LaHaye and movie sequels of Left Behind. Because it's science, you know, it's Star Wars with a Christian twist. And so people love it. It's the futuristic interpretive school of Bible prophecy. Everything's in the future. Jesus comes the second time, they say. There's seven years with some Antichrist that's going to have a glowing 666 in his forehead. And then Jesus Christ comes the third time, destroys the Antichrist, and he institutes some thousand-year reign on earth where he's going to sit over in Jerusalem and reinstitute animal sacrifices. What? Looking back at the cross, they tell us. And there's going to be wicked on the earth, but he's going to rule with the rod of iron, but there's still going to be wicked for a thousand years. Then he's going to come the fourth time at the battle of Armageddon and destroy all the wicked. That's what they say. There's only one day coming. And that one day coming is him raising all the dead and the entire universe standing on trial before him, the devil and his angels and all wicked men being cast into hell, the righteous being taken into heaven, the heavens and the earth being burned up, and us being given a new heaven and a new earth. And so much more could be said, and we don't have time for it, but it's been said, and it's all on our website, and it's all in neat little books that you can read. And for the second week in a row, I highly recommend that you get a little book that's back here in the library with a blue cover called Great Prophecies of the Bible. It is the best book on Bible prophecy if you want to trust someone that for 40 years has looked for the best book on Bible prophecy. It's small, it's easy to read, and it has pictures. Everybody likes books with pictures. And I'm so thankful to God that around 20 years of age, I was able to hear the truth of another school of prophetic interpretation. But that's the futuristic school. The other school that's not nearly as large, but it's wrecking havoc in some, in some conservative churches because its adherents are rabid, is preterism. Instead of futurism, it's preterism. The word praetor is Latin for past. All prophecies are fulfilled. Preterism. All prophecies are fulfilled. You, preacher, you mean most prophet? No, all prophecies are fulfilled. 
Jesus has come the second time. He has raised the dead. He has cast the devil into hell. The great day of judgment has occurred. And we are in the new heaven and the new earth. And all those things occurred in 70 A.D. 1945 years ago. It's called preterism. And if you type that little jewel into a Google search box, you will find out how much stuff there is out there on preterism. Preterism has raised its ugly head in this congregation in the year 2012. And those of you that were here then know what I'm speaking of. And we got rid of those heretics in short order. Because we weren't even going to listen to their ridiculous ideas. You want this passage and another passage of 2 Thessalonians 2, which you read last evening, in order to do combat against the preterists. The preterists believe that everything happened back there. When you show them a passage like 2 Peter 3, they will turn verse 7 and verses 10 through 14 into a metaphorical description of Moses' Old Testament religion being burned up and uh, Jesus Christ and His apostles instituting the New Testament. And that's why I'm spending so much time talking about the physical and material heaven and earth in verses 5 through 7. You know exactly what's being talked about here because it's describing it as the same earth that was overflowed by water in Noah's day. And that wasn't some... Listen, Moses wasn't even a gleam in someone's eye in the days of Noah. Moses wasn't going to come around until 2,500, a 1,000 years after Noah. The third school of prophetic interpretation is the historicist school, and we are historicists, and the vast majority of all the saints of the Lord Jesus Christ of various denominations of Protestants and Baptists were historicists until about 1850 when futurism became popular with C.I. Schofield and others with Schofield Bibles, and you know, when you buy a Bible and you have a man's notes on the page with God's words to you, you are in serious trouble. And I, I warn you against reference Bibles and study Bibles. Right. I know that sometimes you can find help there as to what a name means or a word means or some cross-reference, but when you put men's words on the same page with God's words, you, you are going to be tempted to think of those words more highly than you ought to think. I wish I had so much more time with you. Daniel chapter 8 is, is one of the easiest chapters in the Bible, full of prophecy. It's, it's got a ram and a he-goat. And uh, the ram are the Medes and the Persians, and the, the he-goat are the Greeks. And it's very easy to figure out who it is because he tells you. <laughs> At the end of the chapter, he tells you. Uh, the Holy Spirit tells you who it is. It's one of the easiest chapters in the Bible. But in, in that prophecy, there was going to be a little horn that grew up out of the Greek empire after Alexander the Great was killed and his empire was divided to the four winds to four of his generals. One of those four segments was going to have a little horn grow up out of it. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was going to desecrate the temple of God in Jerusalem. And he did. You know, he killed sows in there and he opened up a brothel in there so that there was fornication going on with Gentiles in the temple of God. And Daniel chapter 8 tells us about that, and it tells us that it's going to last 2,300 days. 2,300 days, about six and a half years. 
Well, there was once a Baptist preacher who didn't believe in really studying the Bible in context. His name was William Miller. He locked himself away for a year and took a concordance in a Bible and came up with the idea that the 2300 days were really 2300 years and that by grabbing the starting point of chapter 9, which is an entirely different prophecy, by grabbing the starting point of Daniel chapter 9, which is 456 B.C., he added 2,300 years to it and came up to 1844. And when you're doing this Bible study in your bedroom and it's 1830, things get exciting. Can you imagine? Did Harold Camping try to pull it off recently? Harold Camping didn't have a clue about the Bible. Have you ever read the man? Have you ever read how important to him the 276 sailors are on the ship that took Paul from Caesarea to Rome? That's how he interprets prophecy, are the 276 men that were on that ship. Let's leave him alone. We've dealt with him before. He, he, he understands prophecy a whole lot better right now. Because he went to meet the great prophet, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've got William Miller thinking that the Lord's going to return in 1844, and he starts to preach it. And so there, it's called the Adventist movement. And so there's all these people thinking that the Lord's going to come. And the first date was March 1844, and <clears throat> he didn't come. <clears throat> so all the, all the Adventists were embarrassed. He went back into his closet, and he came out and said, I've, ref I've sharpened my pencil. I've got some new numbers. It's October. Did Harold Camping ever do that? Yes, you saw the same thing. He didn't come in October. William Miller gave up, disgraced. Most of the Adventists gave up. But there was a troubled little 15-year-old girl named Ellen Gould Harmon, and she kept the faith. She told the few people that would listen to a 15-year-old girl that Jesus had come. They just hadn't seen it. That he had come to do the investigative judgment. And so we have the second greatest doctrine of the Seventh-day Adventists. The investigative judgment. That Jesus came and performed an investigative judgment in 1844 so that William Miller was still right. And so there are still today 30 million Seventh-day Adventists. Along the way, she said that she had a vision that the Lord took her to heaven and she saw the Ark of the Covenant when she went over and tipped the lid. She saw the Ten Commandments in there and the commandment about keeping the Sabbath day was highlighted. You know, it was glowing. So she came back down and told her Adventist followers that had all given up on William Miller that not only had Jesus come in the investigative judgment, type it into a Google search box. Do you know that you have an advantage that no one has ever had before? Any sentence that comes out of my mouth, go home and type it into a Google search box. <clears throat> so she added the Sabbath to the investigative judgment so that the Adventists are still here from William Miller and they're called the Seventh-day Adventists, because they worship on Saturday, the seventh day of the week, instead of Sunday, the first day of the week. Now, why did I tell you all of that? Because when they're proven to be wrong by the Word of God, they will spiritualize the verse away right. so that you will remember that you need to take verse 7 and compare it back to verses 5 and 6 to prove that it is the material heaven and earth that are being dealt with in that passage, not some metaphorical use of heaven and earth like the Old Testament religion of Moses. Sorry for the rabbit trail, but I'm not sorry very much. Because I want you to understand where heresy comes from. 
that comes from a little 15-year-old girl and a minister that didn't want to humble himself before men that had interpreted Daniel 8 correctly before him. Right. Daniel 8 is so easy. It, it, tells you, it tells you at the end of Daniel 8 that the whole prophecy has to be contained within the Greek empire. The Greek empire only lasted a couple hundred years until Rome defeated Greece in 30 B.C. at the Sea Battle of Actium. If you just read the Bible, you know that William Miller was wrong. You know that Ellen G. White, she, got, she married James White and the Seventh-day Adventists are wrong. And the reason I told you all that, there are three schools of prophetic interpretation. And if you run into a preterist, they're going to tell you that all these events have happened, including 2 Peter 3, verse 7, that those heaven and earth are just Moses' Old Testament religion. So let's go to verse 8. Are you worried that Jesus Christ might not come because it sounded like He was going to come a long time ago? Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Here's what a preterist will do to you. Here's what shakes the faith of God's elect. Oh Lord, help me. 1 Peter 1.3 I want verse 5. Let's get verse 5. There's so many of these. I'm giving you some examples of what they call timing texts. These are what preterists call their timing texts, and their whole system depends on these timing texts that they believe tell us that the Lord had to come in the first century. 1 Peter 1.5, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready. Oh, see? The word ready. That word ready should be understood in the mind and the eyes of the writer and the initial audience. That word ready. He is ready to come like tomorrow. Okay, that's 1 Peter 1.5. Chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse 5. Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. See the day of judgment. He's ready to do it. It's about to happen. Verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. They said, see, it's at hand. The Lord's coming is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. The end of the heavens and the earth is at hand. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto Him to show unto His servants things which must shortly come to pass. See? Shortly come to pass. Verse 3 of Revelation 1. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. And they've got scads of these. Just like the Seventh-day Adventists, do you know how many verses they can quote from the whole Bible that you ought to be worshiping on the seventh day of the week? Hundreds. All out of the Old Testament, of course, and the Gospels. They all want to tell you Jesus worshipped on the Sabbath day. Of course He did. He was born a Jew under the law. But after the day of Pentecost, the apostles changed that day of worship to the first day of the week. These people take these little sound bites. You know, atheists have used these sound bites for 2,000 years to cast discredit on the Word of God because Jesus hasn't didn't come at hand. It didn't appear that Jesus was ready to come. And so they take these little sound bites, and men have defended the gospel for a long time. Jonathan Edwards, 300 years ago, had a whole work on this very point of doctrine, taking what they think were infallible timing texts and proving that they didn't even know how to use the Bible. Right. So let's come back to Second Peter 
chapter 3 and look at that 8th verse because it is special and God is sharing with you today a secret of His divine mind. The Word of God reveals things to us that other men cannot know. When they see the words at hand, they go to a dictionary and look up at hand and that is something that is about ready to happen. And so they define it by men's terms. The Bible tells us to define Bible words by God's terms. It's 1 Corinthians 2.13 comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So that when we find at hand and verses like that, we want to read all that the Holy Spirit has to say about the second coming so that we can arrive at the truth. At hand. You say, that that's pretty tough. How do you deal with that? Let's let Paul answer first, since we're Gentiles. Let's go to Paul and go to a passage that you were supposed to have read last night if you prepared yourself for today's worship. I mean that kindly. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Do all of you understand that the futuristic school of prophecy, prophetic interpretation, if you give them two events and say, put these in order, you hand them two three-by-five cards, one three-by-five card says, the second coming of Jesus Christ. The other three-by-five card says, the man of sin and the Antichrist. And you give them a difficult test. And for a futurist, it's pretty hard, but they will figure it out. Put these cards in order. Do you all understand what they would do? Yep. Jesus Christ comes first, then the Antichrist and the man of sin. Same thing. Antichrist, man of sin... The title Paul gives him is the man of sin. The title John gives him, not in the book of Revelation. You can't find the word Antichrist there. I mean, it's in 1 John. Uh, is John's title for him. Daniel's title for him is the little horn. But uh, you, their order. Do you, do, you, do you know this? Jesus comes, then the Antichrist. Jesus comes first, then the Antichrist. So, we go into 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And what is under consideration, verse 1 tells us, that the topic at hand is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto Him, that's verse 1, because it has been described in greater detail in chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, which have been read to you several times over the last month, that Jesus Christ is coming back in verse 7, with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on all the ungodly and wicked, when He shall come to be glorified in His saints, in verse 10, that's the subject at hand. And Paul says in verse 2, Don't be soon shaken in mind, Thessalonian brethren, or be troubled, neither by spirit. Don't let some spirit move you, nor by word. Don't let some teaching or rumor, nor by letter as from us. Don't let there be a forged epistle with my name under it. Don't believe anything, even with my name attached to it, as an epistle as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand, because the day of Christ is not at hand. Don't believe that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, the day of Christ's coming shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Jesus comes back after the man of sin, the Antichrist, is revealed. The futurists are wrong. You say, oh, Preacher, I'm, I'm confused. Pastor, help me. It says here that that day is not at hand. And yet over in Revelation in 1 Peter 4, 5, you read that it is at hand. How can it be at hand and not at hand? 
How can the same event be at hand and not at hand? Because it depends on which perspective you're looking at it from. You say, can you prove that from a Bible? Can you find a little book of Habakkuk quickly? Listen, if I stutter one more time, you won't be able to find it. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 3. Habakkuk 2-3. From the Lord's standpoint, it's at hand. Because a thousand years to Him is as a day. And a day is a thousand years. From our, from our standpoint, and the Thessalonians getting all shook up and worried that He could come any day so they had quit their jobs, so they weren't working like they should have been. How do you know that, Pastor? Second Thessalonians chapter 3 that said they had a problem with a Christian work ethic and that they should throw out of the church anyone that wasn't working and was going about from house to house wanting to talk about the coming of the Lord. Throw them out of the church. They should be working every day. And Paul said, we work day and night trying to give you an example. All you have to do is work half that hard. (laughs) Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 3. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. Does that sound like a prophecy? For the vision is yet for an appointed time. This is a certain event to come in the future. But at the end, it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it. Because it will surely come, it will not tarry. This is the Word of God. It says, uh, though it tarry, wait for it. And from one perspective, it's tarrying and taking its time coming because it will surely come It will not tarry. You say, I don't like the Bible written that way. I love the Bible being written that way because God's put verses like that in there for skeptics and atheists to come along and find that and say, see, it's talking on both sides of its mouth. Because if they if they had the discipline and the intelligence to be able to read the whole Bible, but they don't have a spiritual understanding of it, so they can't find out that that is there for a little key to us, that there are different views of an event coming and the time between now and that event. Back to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. This, this passage is so exciting. Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. We, th- these people were in battle against scoffers and Paul was, Peter was prophesying of a battle with scoffers that were going to come in the future where scoffers would say, nothing's changed. Where's the promise of His coming? There isn't any evidence that this great transcendent event that you Christians talk about is ever going to happen because nothing's changed in thousands of years. Well, they're ignorant of the flood because a big event did take place. Then they are ignorant of this, God's divine view of time. Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. What is the topic at hand? The second coming of Jesus Christ. What is the controversy at hand? The timing of that coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're saying He hasn't come in the time allowed for it. So He's not coming. We say He is most certainly coming. And can we defend ourselves? God gave us His view of time to shut their mouths. And if it doesn't shut their mouths, just leave them alone. Because they don't want to accept the Word of God. They will rip this verse right out of Second Peter 3 because if a preterist were ever to concede even a little tiny bit to this verse, their game is over. Because look what it says. Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. The Lord hasn't come for 2,000 years. 
So how long has that been? Two days. Is that at hand? Is that ready to come? Is that come quickly, Lord Jesus? I love this book. we got to read it all. And thank you for encouraging and supporting your pastor to read it. we got to read it all to find all the verses. And we got to find this one. And we got to understand where that verse is located. It is the issue of the controversy. Is God keeping His promises? And it is an issue of timing. Why hasn't it happened yet? Because it's going to be so delayed that scoffers are going to say, nothing's changed. It's not going to happen. And we say it's going to happen. And God has a different view of time than you do. And that's from Psalm 90 in verse 4. It existed in both Testaments. If I had time, which I don't right now, I don't. I would show you a whole string of Old Testament examples where at hand, ready, quick, will not delay, are used for prophecies that took over a thousand years before they were fulfilled. And they were presented to this church in 2012 as part of the series of messages against preterism. If you want to type another word into our our search box, our little magnifying glass on our website, it would be preterism, and a document will pop up that is a God's gift to our church against preterism. Amen. It is the most thorough and complete document on the website. There's nothing even close to it. It's by it's God's gift, and it's your gift for giving your pastor two weeks off to work 100 hours a week to put that document together, and it is all by the grace of God. Go read it sometime. There's a section called Preterism's Timing Fallacies. And it goes into the Old Testament and shows the at-hand prophecies of the Old Testament gives you the time that they were made, the time they were fulfilled. Sweet. <laughs> it's Psalm 90 and verse 4 that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and it's 2 Peter 3.8. Don't ever forget this verse. You know, some people will say that 2 Peter 3.8 is describing what heaven's going to be like that after you've been there a thousand years, you've only really taken one day of heaven. No, Second Peter 3 eight isn't about heaven at all. Second Peter 3 eight is to give you a tool in your belt or a bullet in your gun. I like that one better. To take on preterists and show that God's timing is different than our timing. Now, why is God delaying and why does God look at things that way and why does He give us that? See, He gives us that in one little verse stuck in right here. We've got to know this verse. Because it's a key. Are there other keys that God has given us that help us in interpreting Scripture? I don't have time to go through those keys right now. I've got them in the outline. But the Lord's given us keys, and this is a key. This unlocks truth. If you don't have 2 Peter 3.8, there's a lot of confusing things in the Bible. God has delayed. There is a long period of time from our viewpoint, two days from His. Why? Why hasn't Jesus Christ come back yet? It's in the next verse. The reason why. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. The promise of His coming. The Lord is not a slacker. He's not lazy. He's not sleeping. He's very punctual. He will come at the appointed time. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Do you know what this verse is used for? 
Do you know what Arminians use this verse for? They want the two last clauses. They don't care about interpreting prophecy because as far as they're concerned, the left behind movies are all they need. They don't care about interpreting anything. They don't care about the audience that this verse was written to. They don't care about its context. They don't care about the argument that has been developed from the first verse all the way down to this ninth verse. They just want those last two clauses. And with those last two clauses, they've got a candy cane in each hand that God wants to save everyone on this planet. Because the last two clauses are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, God wants to save everyone. And you crazies at the Church of Greenville that believe in the doctrine of election, you're wrong, because I got a candy cane from 2 Peter 3.9. Well, why don't you read the context and figure out what it's saying? We are talking about a delay in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And heaven is brimming full of the wicked already. He's not willing that any should perish. Then how does anyone perish? How does anyone perish if God is not willing that any should perish? Do you think you can perish against the will of God? That is insanity. You're a heretic. You're blaspheming. The power of the will of God. What does this verse mean? It's all wrapped up in that middle clause. There's five parts to this verse, and the middle part tells us to whom it's addressed, and the context tells us why it's here. There is a delay. Jesus Christ hasn't come back quickly from our viewpoint, but there's a reason. Because He is long-suffering to usward. Peter is in that, usward. Peter's in it. The scoffers aren't in it. It's the believers that Peter was writing to. It's God's elect. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1 uh, and verse 2 to, to get the audience here. Remember, 2 Peter 3 1 says that he wrote this, both epistles to the same audience. Same audience. Look at 1 Peter 1 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Who is elect? Verse 1, Peter is elect, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers that are Jews that are scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, they've been regenerated and made holy by the Holy Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. They are justified because Christ's blood is upon them. We can go to verse 23. Of the same chapter, it says being born again. We can go to verse 22, that they have obeyed the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. And we come over to 2 Peter. Does he still believe they're elect? In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. These people were elect, and Peter was telling them how to prove their election to themselves. Because there's a list of eight things given there, that if you do those eight things, you're proving you're one of God's elect, because the wicked do not do those eight things. It starts with faith, and it ends with brotherly kindness and charity. In verse verses 5-7, through seven, there are eight things listed. And it says at the end of verse 10, If ye do these things, ye shall never fall, because you will have made your calling and your election sure. You Now look, look at 2 Peter 3.9. And I need to finish this up. And I have pages on 2 Peter 3.9 because it is so abused. You will meet people that will want to quote to you the clauses at the end. They don't understand the verse. They don't know why it's there. They don't care that it's written to a very select group of people identified in the middle of the verse. They just want the words, not willing that any should perish. 
They haven't read the Bible. They've just used candy canes all their lives. If you were to ask them to quote a Bible verse, if they could quote one, it would be John 3.16 because that's all they know. They don't know what John 3.16 means. They don't know how to take John 3.16 and match it with Psalm 5.5 that says God hates all workers of iniquity. They cannot match it with Hebrews chapter 12 that says that God only loves His sons whom He chastens. He does not love the bastards. They cannot reconcile it with Ephesians 5.25 that says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. Christ doesn't love everyone. Or or the words Christ loving the church would be meaningless. Jesus Christ loved His church and He will not lose a single one that God the Father gave Him. And all those verses come into play. John chapter 6 and verse 37, I came down, Jesus said, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Do you understand that? God gave a certain number of people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to die for them, and he guaranteed that he would raise every single one of them. John chapter 10. Let's go four chapters later. John 10, Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. John 17 too. He's in the garden of Gethsemane. And he's praying his high priestly prayer to his Father in heaven. And he says, as thou hast given him, speaking of himself to God the Father, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. That is all consistent. Ephesians chapter 1, that we were chosen in Christ Jesus before the world began. Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8. Our names were written in the book of life before the world began. 2 Timothy 1, 9, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Jesus Christ came not to die for the devil, not to save the devil and his demons, not to save the wicked, to save a church so that in the ages to come, there would be a great difference made in the human family. No one deserves to go to heaven. All of us deserve to go to hell. It's all of grace that any of us go to heaven. It's not because you're better than someone else or that you did something different than someone else. Otherwise, when you get to heaven, you get all the glory. But all the glory is His because He made the difference. And it's called election in 1 Peter. And it's called election in 2 Peter. And it says in the middle of this ninth verse, He is long-suffering to usward. Usward. The elect. He's long-suffering to usward. The only reason He hasn't come and burned up this stinking LGBT environment in which we live is because He's waiting for the last elect to be born, to be regenerated, and bam, this thing is over. He's waiting for the last one, one by one, because Jesus said, I will not lose one of them. This is so personal. This is so precious. They do not have a clue about this verse. Is God willing that men perish? Let me show you that God's willing. That First of all, you should know that when it says not willing that any should perish, do you think that someone can perish against the will of God? What in the world are you even thinking about the will of God? When you, if you would even construct that in your mind. Look at Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. While you're turning, can you turn and listen? While you're turning, Proverbs 16, 4. The Lord hath made 
all things for himself. And you say, how far does that go? The Lord hath made all things for himself. Well, the Holy Spirit's going to give you the extreme example by the word even in our language. Yea, even. Yea, even this extreme. The Lord hath made all things for himself. Proverbs 16.4 Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. What is the day of evil? That is the day of judgment when God will bring evil upon their heads. The Lord hath made all things for himself. Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Why do you think Satan exists? Was it an accident? Did God accidentally create Lucifer? He accidentally sinned? God let him watch too much television? Why did Satan sin? Why did it occur in the universe? Because the sovereign God wanted to create the highest being in this universe and cast him down to hell for his sins. And he sinned willfully and rebelliously against the God of heaven. It's God is not willing that Satan be preserved. I can't believe that people worry about people more than they worry about the devil because the devil is greater in power and might than any of us. Why don't they worry about the devil? Why don't they feel sorry for him? Why should he have to go to hell just because he wanted to be God? That's not that bad, is it? Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Do you know this passage? Remember this passage. Look what it says. You don't even have a right to question God about how He made you or what He does with humanity. Look at Paul answering a question in verse in verse 19. Thou wilt say then unto me, here's a scoffer, why doth he yet find fault for who hath resisted his will? Since Paul had just taught that it is God's will that gives grace, mercy, and compassion, and it's God's will that hardens men, how can you hold man responsible when it's God's will in the matter? Look what Paul says. He says, oh, you, you misunderstood me, please. Let me soften that message just a little bit so that you can swallow it. Is that what Paul said? Look what Paul said. Verse 20, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Does that make sense to you? That a potter has the right to do whatever he wants to with the clay? What if God, verse 22, what if God willing? What was that word that we had over there in 2 Peter 3, 9? He is not willing that any should perish. But look what it says here. What if God willing? Willing. Willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much, what's that word? Long suffering. The vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil or destruction. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. God made two kind of vessels with the clay of humanity, which he had a four, a four prepared into glory. Before the foundation of the world, he had prepared glory for this this part of humanity. Jesus is going to say to the sheep on his right hand in the great day of judgment, Matthew chapter 25, come and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. A four prepared unto glory. Even us, 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 Paul, elect church that he's writing to, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, because it's not all the Jews, the elector of the Jews and of the Gentiles, but also of the Gentiles. 
It's not all the Gentiles, it's of the Gentiles. More verses could be raised, but uh, it should be sufficient for the time being, and they're all over our website as well. 2 Peter 3.9, hurry, help me, please. 2 Peter 3.9, Lord God, we humble ourselves before Thee and thank Thee for the Lord Jesus Christ. We admit that this entire race deserves to be in hell along with all the fallen angels and the devil himself. But we thank Thee for the Lord Jesus Christ that before the world began, You chose us in Christ Jesus and assigned Him to come and save us from our sins. Holy Father, we thank Thee. We were workers of iniquity. We were children of wrath, even as others. But You had mercy upon us. Thank You, Lord. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness. You understand the context now, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does it come as fast as we think? Because He's waiting. Why is He waiting? He's waiting for us. He's waiting for us. He is long-suffering to usward. The elect, Peter and the elect, as a class of God's elect, ascending, extending into the future until the last one is born, not willing that any should perish. Any what? Any of the usward. Any of the elect. None of them can perish, but that all should come to repentance. Who are the all? All of what? All of the usward. All of the elect brought to repentance. You say, well, that sounds like every one of them is going to repent. That is the general rule of Scripture. That is the general rule of Scripture taught in a hundred other places. Why is that bothering you? And that's for the congregation at large. You can look up that whenever you need to. But it's describing the regenerate elect here by their repentance that there needs to be time for them to be born again in order to repent. And as soon as the last one is born again and repents, this world will wrap up. So who's holding everything up? God's elect. Does God want to burn the world right now? Do you have any question about that? Why did he drown it in the days of Noah? Do you know that he waited 120 days and it's called the long suffering of God waited? Do you know that those are the terms? I don't have time. Do you understand? That the long suffering of God waited. Did he, did he want to drown the earth in Genesis 6 and the beginning of the chapter? Why did it take 120 years? Because that ark was a big boat and they didn't have a a lot of tools that we have. And Noah was going to preach to them for 120 years to get them to repent. You also saw the word long-suffering over there in Romans chapter 9 and verse 22 that God is long-suffering against those vessels of wrath. His wrath is ready to explode on them, but He waits to make sure all of the elect are gathered in. Jesus said, I will not lose one of them. So when it says, not willing that any should perish... That's that any of the elect should perish, but I will wait until every single one of them is saved. Now, they were elected before the world began, and their name's put in the book of life. Jesus died for them on the cross. But you have to have personal existence in this world in order to be born again. And you have to be born again with a new nature in order to be able to go to heaven. Except a man be born again, he cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. Jesus taught to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. This verse is totally consistent with everything else in the New Testament. That all of the elect will be saved. And that God is only willing and has only put forth the Lord Jesus Christ for those that he gave the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ promised, I will lose none of them. And God knows that. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Do you think that God loves someone in hell? Would you please explain it to me? Because God himself said that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Right. How can somebody that God loves be in hell? Do you know what kind of love that is? Worthless. 
absolutely worthless. It's blasphemous to even think of that. You know, someone would hear this message maybe and think that that sounds like God is cruel. God is so loving, and it's all for His honor and glory. You know, he, He created this universe seeing all of this in advance, and He created the universe seeing all of this in advance because this was His purpose to display His glory in the universe. God didn't make you because He thought you needed existence. God didn't give anything for you. He made you for Him. Revelation 4.11 says, The Lord hath made all things were created by Him and for Him and for their, His pleasure they are and were created in Revelation 4.11. Right. Those out there who like to take the last two clauses of this verse and their, as their candy canes that God wants to save everyone, think about their theology. They believe that God is omniscient. So God looked down through time and saw everyone that was going to reject Him and not believe on Jesus as their Savior, as they teach. And so He would send them to hell. But He went ahead and created them anyway. Why did He go ahead and create them anyway? Ask them sometime. Why did God create those that were not going to accept Him and that He was going to send them to hell since He loved them so much and was not willing that any should perish all he had to do was pull the string on creating them. Right. Why did he create them? Because they have a bankrupt theology and they turn God into a monster. That his love sends people to hell. He has a very strange way of showing his love. What we just saw from the Bible is that God from the beginning has created all things for himself and his own glory, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. And as a potter with clay... He made some vessels of mercy that he would show mercy upon by assigning the Lord Jesus Christ to save them. And others were vessels of wrath. that he cho- They're the ones that sinned willfully in the Garden of Eden, and they sinned willfully every single day, that he would leave them vessels of wrath to display his power and his anger through eternity against sin because he is one holy God right. that we are dealing with, and he is coming to burn up the universe. Second Peter 3.9 is our verse. It's about the elect. The us word in the middle of the verse is sufficient. God, he is long-suffering. He is suffering because he wants to judge the wicked as he did in the days of the flood. But he's waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting till the last elect is gathered in. And then Jesus Christ will come. Right. You say, is there any other example of this in the Bible? I close with this. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. Why don't you look at it with me? Revelation 6, 9 through 11. Is there any other example where there is the spirit of judgment ready to fall, but it's waiting for persons. This verse should be so precious because it is personal. Not if there is one elect out of the entire family of God that is not yet born, and their names are in the book of life, they haven't been born, they haven't been born again yet, God holds up the entire universe. Here's another example of persons. These are the martyrs under the throne of God. Revelation 6, 9, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. You understand that for someone to be slain for the word of God, there were murderers that killed them for the word of God. You understand there's two classes of people. There's vessels of wrath and there's vessels of mercy. And they cried with a loud voice, these martyrs, these are the purest people that have ever walked this earth. 
They cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So there again, the spirit of pure men calling for vengeance on this earth and God saying, not yet, not yet, just wait a little bit longer because I've got some other martyrs that I have purposed would give their lives for me in this world. And when the last one is gathered in and is with you under the altar, I'll come. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. You can ignore Noah, that it happened, there was never rain in the earth. But it rained and it drowned everyone with the breath of life in their nostrils. I've warned you and I've warned me today from Second Peter chapter 3. This is the Word of God. And there is a day coming, the likes of which we've never seen nor imagined. Let us humble ourselves and embrace the Savior and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on Him and add to your faith virtue and to your virtue knowledge and to your knowledge patience and temperance and godliness and brotherly kindness and charity. And if you do these things, you'll make your calling and election sure and you will be given an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is 2 Peter 1, 5-11. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen.